All right, well, good morning, family. It's always so good to see all of you. So happy to be here. And uh, it's just a privilege to, to bring the word. It's a privilege for us to sit under the word. We, we do this crazy thing every week, right? We get together and uh, most of us sit down and we listen to a guy talk about a book uh, that we confess to be the story of the universe, right? <laughs> the, the, the story of all of our lives, the story that encompasses every one of us. Uh, but it's a beautiful thing. And we do it every week, and we're going to do it right now. Uh, if you would open your Bibles, uh, the text that we're going to be going through today is uh, continuing on in the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be going uh, verses 11 through 16. So again, Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 16. Blessed are you, When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out And trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Father, we want to see Jesus more clearly. Father, we want to know this man who who claimed to be the the author of all things, the one who claimed to, to come to make a way for a people to be brought to the living God. Lord, we want to see this Jesus more clearly. Jesus, we want to know you. We want to see you. So, Lord, do clear our minds and clear our eyes, clear our hearts. We pray that we would heed the counsel of your word. We pray that we would hear the story of your word. Lord, give us ears of faith, eyes of faith, minds of faith, hearts that are gripped with the realities that we see in this text. Lord, let your word speak today by your spirit and your good and holy power. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. All right. So because I think this text is familiar to a lot of us, a lot of us grew up in the church, or at least we've been Christ followers for a very long time. I think that we, it's really easy to glaze over just how audacious and offensive this text actually is. And we hear that and we're like, well, that doesn't seem salt and light. That seems like a very kind thing for Jesus to be saying to these people. But let's just consider a few things about what I just read here. Who's Jesus talking to? Just consider that for a moment. So picture the scene, right? We read in the previous chapter, he's been going around teaching in the synagogues, right? The uh, the Jewish places of worship. He's been proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, right? The announcement that God is coming to make all things new and to bring forgiveness of sins. He's been performing signs and wonders and miracles. So he's accrued a crowd, right? You picture this great crowd that's come around Jesus. And in our text, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, what Matt started last week, We read that Jesus goes away from the crowd, he goes up to a mountaintop, and he sits down and his disciples follow him. But do the crowds run away from him? Do the crowds leave? No, the crowds follow him. 
But Jesus sits down on this mountaintop and he addresses his disciples in the presence of a crowd. I don't know how many of you guys have gone on a date with a couple and you feel like the third wheel. You're that guy back there because the two, you know, the, the dude and the gal are just looking at each other and they're talking. And you're like, well, here I am. Like, I'm here too. Like, I, I want you to talk with me. Let's engage here. And that, I could imagine to some degree, that's probably how the crowds felt. They're listening into a conversation. They're not being addressed. Jesus is talking specifically to his disciples here. But... I think the more offensive part actually comes when you realize what's being said. Jesus looks at these people, this small group of people, and he says, you are the salt of the earth. You, disciples of mine, are the light of the world. Now, why is that so audacious? Because to say that some group of people are salt and light is to indicate that there's a lack of salt and light everywhere else, right? Think about that. Jesus is looking at these people, and if he calls a particular people, you are salt and you are light, it means the rest of the crowd and the rest of the people are not salt and light. Everyone else who's there is not salt and light. And in fact, they need salt and light. It would be like Jesus getting up and looking at the crowd and saying, you know, the world without you guys is like meat without salt. You know what? The world without you guys is like a big, dark with no light. What in the world? That is so offensive, right? Right? That is so drastically offensive. These men, what's so special about them? These, these disciples, these people, they're just, they're fishermen, right? The ones that we've been introduced to thus far in chapter 4. They're ordinary, uneducated country bumpkins, right? These people that Jesus here who's emphatically singling out as the lone bearers of salt and light, you guys, these guys, there's only darkness where these people are not present. Jesus here is saying that these people, to some degree, are the most significant kinds of people in human existence. That's rough. That is really rough for the crowds that are listening. This is, offense, this is a, a massive offense to our modern sensibilities. And the statement, though, I don't think it says so much about the disciples as it says something about Jesus, right? Right? Who is this man who assumes the authority to make so bold a claim? Who gave Jesus the right to look at this motley crew of everyday people and label them the salt of the earth and the light of the world? And the offense grows deeper when you consider what makes these people salt and light, right? It has nothing to do with their personal gifting. It has nothing to do with their socioeconomical or political background or anything like that. What makes them salt and light is their relation to Jesus. What makes them salt and light is their demeanor towards their response to the way in which they have spoken of and are pursuing Jesus. That is what makes them salt and light. Who is this Jesus that would make so bold a claim? It's why the, 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 this, this broad, broadly shared conception that Jesus was a good moral teacher makes absolutely no sense. Jesus, no good moral teacher gets up and says, the way that you are going to be salt and light and be a preserving and wonderful and bright element in the world is by being my disciple. That, that, that is, that's not a good moral teaching. There's something to this man that is mysterious, something to this man that is authoritative, that bears a weight to it that he assumes as he's talking with these people. And the crowds notice. And what about these disciples? This, this, this label, right, salt and light, 
What does this mean for these people that Jesus is talking to? Well, as we're looking at this text today, there's three things that come to the fore, and we're just going to deal with them in the order that they come. Number one, they're blessed, even though that they're persecuted. Number two, they enhance and they preserve the best of their immediate context. That means they're salt. And number three, they bring brightness, and they expose what lies in the dark. And they are the light of the world. Uh, So let's go ahead and start with the first one, blessed though persecuted. Uh, So the final beatitude that's mentioned in verse 11, we just read it. It's different from the others in that it switches, right? He's been saying, blessed are the, blessed are the. And now Jesus looks at his disciples and he said, blessed are you. But the pronouncement of blessed, as wonderful as it is, it seems to run against what follows, right? (laughs) You're blessed when you are reviled and when you're persecuted and when people speak of you slanderously and falsely. But the qualifier at the end of the beatitude sums up why it is that they're blessed. All these things are done to them on account of their allegiance to, their relation to, and their confession of Jesus, which will result in great reward in heaven. Think of Matthew's appeal here. Think, think of Jesus' appeal here that Matthew's writing. There's not, this, there's not a timid appeal to like, well, yeah, you know, it's hard right now, but things will be okay. No, he's saying, you will be blessed. In fact, the, the two imperatives, two of the three imperatives that are in this text that we're looking at today are here, and it's rejoice and be glad because what you are experiencing right now will result in beautiful, wondrous reward in heaven. Jesus isn't shy in the slightest to say, you ought to be glad. You ought to rejoice. Your heart ought to sing to some degree at the persecutions and the things that are being said of you because they're saying them to you with regards to me, with regards to what what you think of me, what you say of me, what makes you distinct. In other words, the greatest blessing in all of existence, right, which for us as Christ followers, we we know it's fellowship, it's friendship with the living God in Christ. It's going to come with a price. To associate oneself with Christ is often going to result not in public acclaim, popularity, pleasant circumstances, but in persecution, slander. Though we're blessed with the greatest good that will ever be known, the distinctiveness of our identity as Christians will often be the root cause for slander, mocking, and probably this, this nagging feeling that you're, you're just perennially being misunderstood and misrepresented. I, I, I talk to so many people who it, it feels like they, they, they think that if, you could, if they could just explain to people what a Christian actually is, that somehow that would make them like Christians. That somehow if we, we're, that it's something wrong with the way that Jesus is communicating, or it's something wrong with the preaching, or it's something wrong with the way that Christians are in the world. Now, sometimes that's the case, but they act as if the world is meant to love us. They act as if the world was meant to think that we're just the greatest thing and that we're always supposed to be entitled to the world's approval. Jesus here is saying, no, of course not, because what we say so often is going to run against the grain of what the world wants, of what the world esteems and holds high. Now, obviously, the key here is that one is persecuted in these ways on account of Jesus, Let's, to, to make that really clear, um, there's a million and one ways to get people to speak poorly of you, right? It's not that only Christians are poorly spoken of or misrepresented or misunderstood or scorned, right? 
don't misconstrue the offense of Jesus and his gospel with maybe, I don't know, like your disorderly conduct, uh, your lax work ethic, um, your short temper, backbiting gossipy speech, or, you know, just a, a, lack, a general lack of compassion or patience. Right? The offense of the gospel is an offense in and of itself. It's an offense to the world that we live in. And I think sometimes we feel justified. Some of us who are a little more bold maybe in that way, we feel like, well, I can just bring the message however I want to. No, you probably need to repent, actually. Uh, don't bring unnecessary offense to the gospel. There's no need to. There's no need to at all. There's a sense in which the distinctness of the gospel carries enough offense in and of itself. And for those areas where it's, you know, you're just being a bad representative of Jesus, maybe consider repenting just as an exhortation on the side. Let's go to the second point, salt. What about salt? I think the main force of salt, when, when Jesus is using this here, it's found in the distinctiveness of salt, right? When it's salt is present, it's really obvious. And the same can be said for when it's absent. You know when something has been salted. But I think that there's two uses of salt that, that the ancient world used and that we use today that give shape to how we should understand what Jesus is saying here. The first use is just that is seasoning, which is the use that most of us are most familiar with particularly me. The thing, about putting, <laughs> uh, uh, the thing about putting salt on someone's food is that attention, though, is not drawn to the salt, right? But to the item that the salt was added to. So I, when, I, when I come home after a long work day, you know, I have meetings or, or whatever I've been doing that day, I think my, one of my favorite things is to come home and to, to eat dinner. I, I love it. One, because I love to eat. And then two, because I love to be with my family. And, I, and my wife cooks really great food. Amber's a wonderful cook. So you picture, I come home, God, I'm tired, oh, sweet, come, we sit down, we're at the table, we pray, we sing, we're there, and I, I take my first bite, and I'm a really loud eater, <laughs> my, my wife will let you know, not because I eat with my mouth open most of the time, but because uh, I, I just, I'm like, oh, God, mm, oh, it's, it's great, it's, it's embarrassing in public sometimes, my wife, uh, my wife can attest to that, but when I get it, and I, you know, eat a bite of soup or something like that, I don't look at my wife, I'm just like, babe, mm, dang, babe, that's salt, I'll tell you, oh my goodness, that's salt, like, it is rich, it, I'd miss the point, and my wife would probably let me know that I missed the point, it's like, you know, no, it's, it's not just salt, you're not a cow, like, I made that soup for you, and it's meant to give you nourishment, but the salt enhances the soup, it's intended to bring out the other elements in the soup, the best elements in the soup, and make it better than it already is. And I think it's the same thing with us. For those of us in this room who confess Christ, beloved, the presence of a Christ follower is meant to bring out the best of what is already there. It's meant to draw out the good and make it even better. Our presence as followers of Christ is meant to enhance, to bring flourishing, to whatever context we find ourselves in, at the workplace, our neighborhoods, in our homes, at other family gatherings. That's a question you ask. Think about it. When you go into work, what are you bringing? Right? When you walk in there, what, what is it that you're bringing? You're walking into a situation that's ripe for some sort of change. Right? There's, there's relationships. There's food maybe that's being cooked. There's construction that's being done. There's uh, uh, cabinets that are being built. Well, whatever your line of work might be, there's a way for that to, be, to, to flourish. And the Christian is intended to bring out the best of those elements. We ought to be the best carpenters. We ought to be the best cooks. We ought to be the best baristas or, or uh, writers or whatever it might be. 
The Christian imagination should go nuts because we've been taken, we've been taken in by Christ. And the relationships that we have at work ought to be so distinctly beautiful because we're bringing out the best of it, bringing out the most glorious parts of it. But I think the second predominant use of salt is equally enlightening, and that's as a, a preservative, right? So without refrigeration in the ancient world, meat would just be prone to rot. And pretty quickly, you leave a you know, chicken or beef or whatever on the countertop overnight, it gets nasty. People don't want to eat it. Um, and a means of slowing this process was to cure the meat. And you cure something just by, you just rub salt all over it, or you make a brine, a really, really salty water mixture, and you just let the meat sit in there. And what it does is it kills the bacteria that otherwise messes up the meat. It ruins it. And I think the picture here is beautiful. I think it's really stark, right? There's this process of rotting, of decay, that is actually taking place in this age. And as such, there's a great need for preserving what otherwise is going to be made useless or even sickly right? The disciple of Christ, we are told here, is that preserving agent. The very presence and activity of Christ's disciples in the world is intended to be restorative and conserving. But then think about what he says later on at the end of this verse. If salt is no longer salty, how can it be resalted or made salty again? So what are you saying here? If the salt's not acting as salt, is not fulfilling its purpose. To be the salt of the earth means to be distinct, distinctively set apart as Christ's disciples in this world. Blessed to be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. Beloved, we don't think about this this much here in North America, but the church started thousands of miles here. On the other side of the globe, we're about as far as you could possibly get. There is a Christian witness right now on every continent. On every continent, there is a vibrant Christian witness. That didn't happen because the church got, these guys got saved and they said, okay, let's, let's back off now and let's just sort of start our own little thing. And, and, and stay away from the rest of the community around us. It happened because the second the church was blessed with new life, they went out. They understood. I've been blessed that I might be a blessing. And the gospel exploded all around the world. We're here today doing what we're doing in the English language, holding in our hands Bibles, as many as we have in this room today, because of the faithful witness of a bunch of people who said we were blessed, not in isolation, not to remain in isolation, but we were best to be a blessing. We were meant to be the salt of the earth. And if we're not doing it, we're not fulfilling not just what we were made to be, what we could be, but who we actually are in Christ. This is God's pattern. Now for that third thing, light. You were the light of the world. What does it mean for us to be the light of the world? If you look at the passage, there's, there's one thing that it, this, this verse sort of sneaks something in here that I, that I think is really telling for us. There's this little interruption. It says, you are the light of the world. There's that very emphatic statement. You are the light of the world. But then he says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. What, what does that have to do with anything? That's, that doesn't seem, because then he picks up the light analogy right after that. So what's the city part? But I think that's probably the most important assumption here that Jesus is making about light, and that's that it's not going to be alone. 
It's not going to be an individual light. It's not going to be one isolated, isolated light, but a community of lights, a city of lights. You get this picture of this city that's sitting on a hilltop, and it glows. But the glow that it's giving isn't the glow from one isolated person, and a woman or man, in the middle of the city with a candlestick. It's a city full of people who are all bearing light. The light shines brightest in community. The light shines brightest when there's this multiplicity of disciples, when there's this group together who who display this wonderful light to each other and then who display it to the world outside of them, outside of their context and their communities. It's a beautiful picture. It's absolutely beautiful. We have to get this, that, that all alone amid dreary darkness, a light is, it's something. It's something. It's light. But it's another thing to walk around with an entire community of people who as a people have given their allegiance to Jesus Jesus assumes here, we have, to, we have to see this, he assumes that when his disciples come to him, it's not just in individual terms. Jesus' light will shine brightest amid the communal praises, the prayers, the feasts, the fasts, works of mercy, works of mission, all done together by his people, as a crew, as a group. The second thing to consider about light is that you know, at a distance, you know, light might draw attention to itself. So you see light, but brightness isn't the primary thing that light gives, right? It does give brightness, but you don't walk into a room and turn a line on just so you can be blinded by the light, right? It's not just brightness. No, the light is a means of exposing things. And not just exposing the bad things or the good things or the ugly things, but everything. When light comes, it exposes everything in the world, in a community, in a culture, in a room. Now, why this might sound good and fine, it's like, yeah, light's good. I'm the light of the world. I like that. There's this immediate implication that I think needs to sober us, and it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. And that's that the exposing of things that lie in darkness often exposes things that want to remain in the dark. So think about that. You bring in light into your, your context, be it your home or your work or wherever else. While we might think it's welcome, might not be welcome. While we think our words might be bringing light to a situation that needs to be, hey, look at this. The world around us might not want to see it. They want to stuff it. And I think this is what Paul's getting at in Ephesians uh, 5, right? 7 through 14. You don't, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it. But, but hear these words from Paul in Ephesians 5. It says, therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. The very presence of light will show evil works for what they really are. To whatever degree of evil it might be. Lying, cheating, stealing, or massive things. Corruption in in government systems. Abortion. Abortion human trafficking, and there's, there's a million things. 
But this is inevitably going to bring tension between us and those who are around us. <laughs> it's bound to bring tension, beloved. If you are light, and you are light if you are in Christ, it's going to bring tension. It's going to bring situations where it's going to be discomforting, uncomfortable. We are expected, Christ is telling us that here, expect to be scorned to one degree or another. Expect that when you expose this thing that is lying in the dark, they're not going to be thankful for it all the time. <laughs> There's going to be a degree to which they're going to say, we want it. We're, we're good enough by ourselves. Thank you very much. Leave us alone. Because when the gospel comes in, inevitably it's going to come in with a, with a power and with a potency, and it's going to call people to repent. It's going to call people to turn around from their various practices that aren't in accord with Christ's rule and his kingdom. But then one has to consider the other side of the same coin, right? It's not all bad. We don't expose stuff and it's just all heinous and hard and negative all the time. Read verse 16. As Christ's disciples go forward, bearing good witness, not just by word, but primarily in this text, through deeds, right? They're good works. (laughs) Worship and admiration is evoked from the people who are seeing it. The people who are watching the church be the church are are watching what is happening and they're drawn not into scorn and not into worship of the people, but they're drawn into worship of the God who these people serve. Right? Jesus says that you're going to have both. Notice the same good deeds, the same good message. The one that stirs up reviling persecution and slander that we saw at the beginning of our text is also going to awaken the praises of God most high in the hearts of the onlookers. There's no distinction in terms of who gets to hear the message or who gets to receive the good deeds. God isn't here saying, Jesus isn't here saying, you go to these people because you know they're going to respond this way. Or, you know, these people will probably respond better over here. So go to these people. They're more ready. No, you don't know what's going to happen. You're going to go out there and you're going to share the word and it might be a person who raises his hands and sheds tears and says that God is truly among you. Or you might go out and they're going to scorn your name, misrepresent you, and laugh in your face. It's good for us to hear this, I think, beloved, because I think we're surprised when this sort of stuff happens. The church for the first 300 years and the church today, the church throughout, throughout history, but just particularly thinking about the first 300 years, the growth that took place at that time was absolutely enormous. And it was this incredible mixed bucket of people who would scorn the church, people who were being, I mean, where one emperor would, would crucify Christians and light them on fire at night as a display of his power and his, his disdain toward the Christians. You had that on the one hand, and then you had this, you're watching the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire at the, at the time, crumble. And it's not crumbling just under the weight of its own ineptitude and the, and the attacks of the surrounding countries. It's crumbling in part because Romans are becoming followers of Christ. Because Romans are watching as Christians treat each other with this depth of love and this self-sacrifice that is just stunning. It's, not, it's like nothing that they've ever seen. It's an incredible testimony to God's power and it's an incredible testimony to the fact that we get both and we're going to still get both today. And we ought not to be surprised about it in spite of how hard it might be. <clears throat> it's a really high calling, right? Even as we talk about it.
But I think that that's, 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 even that's a bad way to say it. It's not even a calling. I think the most beautiful reality of the text that we've seen today is, is that these characteristics aren't just habits that we put on, right? It, it's not traits that, that I want to try to bear and, 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 or, or habits that I developed. No, 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 no. These are indicators of who we actually are in Christ. I said at the beginning that this text was audacious and offensive, right? And it is. But that the most audacious part wasn't so much about what was said about the disciples, but the fact that Jesus was saying it. And the fact that Jesus was saying it laid clear that this man is claiming something extraordinary about himself. It's not just a challenge. It's not just a challenge for us today. I think when we read this text, we have to remember that because this text is meant to be a comfort for us. Because, beloved, at the end of the day, which one of us actually does what salt and light are supposed to do in the world well or perfectly? Who, who of us in this room has not struggled with you know, the fear of man in freely presenting Christ in our circles of influence? Not a soul. Not a soul. Right? Who of us hasn't caved into gossip or slander at work? Right? We, 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 we jump into a conversation and it's just, well, this is fun and, and it's easy. I can fit in. They'll like me so I can kind of gossip along with them or I can slander along with them or I can talk about the political situation and just, and just go off with these guys. Who of us hasn't caved into impatience at home? Being, you're, you're not being light at home, right? Who of us hasn't caved into uh, maybe not being involved with our neighbors or in our neighborhood, meeting the needs, doing the good deeds that we see set before us, but we don't engage in them. We don't actually do them. We don't get up and actually get ourselves involved in these things. Or who of us hasn't been tempted to stand out, you know, just as little as possible for fear that our association with Jesus is going to bring the same sort of shameful responses that Jesus himself actually got and that he said would be ours in this text. We've all done it. None of us in this room have done it right. None of us in this room have done it perfectly. And none of us in this room, I think when we really admit it, none of us really do it well, no matter how long we've been doing this. Yeah, if we were the standard by which all humanity ought to live, if we were the ones who set the bar for what human flourishing, what the good life in our communities really is to, to look like, it, it's, it's a doomed enterprise. We're toast. <laughs> We have nothing to give. But we're not the standard. We're not. Jesus is the standard. Right? Jesus is the truly blessed one. When you think about it, he is the blessed one. He is the one. It is what Matt preached last week. He is the meek one, the merciful one, the one who is pure in heart. He is the peacemaker. And he's the true salt of the earth. You think he everywhere he went. He's saturated with the presence of the kingdom. And you get the beautiful stories of when he encounters death. He gets to Lazarus' grave, and, 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 and he, he looks death right in the face. And, and looking death right in the face, he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus gets up and comes forth. He, he's, in, he's engaging the decay of the corruption in the world, and he calls it down, and it can do nothing but step down. Jesus himself comes in, and he does this. He's the true light of the world. He exposes the corruption of the world while working the deeds that bring glory to his Father. People are stunned. The crowds are gathering because they want to see this man. They want to see what this man is doing. 
And it's not just the good that Jesus does, but he's also the truly persecuted one. He's the one who's reviled, the one who is slandered. Not just by the world, though, beloved, but by those who would call themselves his disciples. You think about that? You think about the people that Jesus looks and he, he calls out his disciples and says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And he's talking to the very people who are going to go and who are going to despise him and whose sins he is actually going to bear on the cross. And Jesus knows it. But does that stop him? No, he hangs on the cross. He dies. He bears our sin, our shame, the insults that we deserve. But then, this is the stunning thing, beloved. In his matchless love, he's, it's not just that he forgives us and then he says, oh, you can come and just, you're, you're good now. You're not going to get destroyed. You're not going to suffer in hell. He calls us then into his work. Because he calls us his brothers and his sisters. And he doesn't say that just that the family resemblance is going to be there because I did everything, just come on in. No, he says, you are going to look like me. You are going to act like me. You're going to talk like me. You're going to do the very things that I do in the world. You are going to be the salt of the earth. And not going to be. Not future tense. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And when he says those things, he doesn't do it with the slightest bit of shame, but with the absolute confidence because he did it. He's going to do it. And he's done it. It's been done. If you are in this room and you have called on Christ, beloved, by the authority of the risen Christ, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Every one of you. Every one of you. If you have called on Christ, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That is a magnificent reality that we are called into all by Christ's kindness. We are called to be co-laborers with him for the restoration and the flourishing of all humanity. What a privilege what a, what a, I mean, just, even just thinking about it, just for a moment, what a massive privilege. Again, not just to be forgiven, not just to be called sons and daughters. You weren't just forgiven, beloved, you were changed. You were transformed. The day that you confessed Christ, the day that the very Spirit of God came in your heart to make you new, you were made a different person. One who bears the image of the Son of God. One who is meant to go go forth in the world, into our communities, and, and, and be the very voice, the very hands, the very feet of Jesus Christ. That, 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 that phrase, that thought, it's so cheap. We, I think we just consider it so cheap. And it's, it's, it's not cheap. It's the most pricely and costly and goodly, wonderful reality that we could possibly have. We are his hands and feet. We are his voice in this world. What a wonderful reality. In conclusion, just one point, just one application, and it's just a challenge. A punking, if you would. Are you walking in accord with who you really are? 
Just ask yourselves. And this isn't, this isn't again, r- r- just, just, just hear it. Not for yourself, not for your neighbor, not for your spouse, not for your, your kid or for your friend that you're concerned about. Right? Not, for your, not for your pastors, <laughs> not, not, not for your, your community group leaders, not for extended family that are not walking with the Lord, not for extended family that are walking with the Lord, but they're acting like they're not. But for you, for you. Second Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, behold, the new has come. Again, beloved, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. When you go into your workplace, what do you bring? I, I don't think this is too hard to ask. I don't think this is too strong of a thing to ask. Is it different? Are you different? Does the atmosphere of your workplace, of your home, of your school, Meals that when you get together with people, when you eat out at a restaurant, does the atmosphere change because of your presence? Because that's what we're being told here is that it does. And we can expect it to. When you go to work, are you bringing with you the preserving life of Jesus Christ? The, the, the flavoring life of Jesus Christ that brings out all the good things and makes them better. Are you going into your homes? Fathers, when you come home from work, are you bringing light into your home? When you walk through the door, does the house shine brighter because you're there? Does it look better? Children, sons in this room, who who are who older, who are doing college, or who are working but still live at home. When you come home, what does it look like? Are you bringing with you the fragrance of Christ? When you step into conversations in your neighborhood, do your neighbors know that you know Jesus? <laughs> do your neighbors know that there's something distinct about you? I, one, of the, one of the hardest things I ever heard <laughs> was, was uh, uh, bumping into some people that I used to work with, and I was talking with one of them, and uh, this gal and I, I used to serve with her, and, and she, I, she heard that I had, was doing pastoral work now, and, and uh, she walks, oh, I didn't, I didn't even know you were a Christian, <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm horrible, what a wicked man, I can't believe that I, you know, just this woman talking, it hit me to the heart, it pierced me to the core of my soul, I just thought, Man, that, that's just, oh, God, that, that's rough. That's rough to hear. But then the question becomes, then what do I do? Do I look to that? Do I make excuses? Do I make excuses for why I, you know, well, it's because she didn't know me very well or she didn't understand what I was saying? Or, or do I turn around the other way and I say, God, I'm awful. I need to do better. I need to be a better man. I need to... I think the solution at the end of the day, beloved, is you cling closer to Christ. (laughs) You lose sight of Christ. You lose sight of his goodness. You forget that he is the true salt of the world. You forget that he is the light of the world. You think that somehow you're going to do this on your own. You think that somehow by our own measure we're going to be able to do this stuff. We fall back and we fall on our faces again and again. 
But Christ in his goodness, just like with the disciples who did deny him, who did spit in his face, who did oppress him and persecute him, who denied him, Christ said, you come follow me. Get up, come follow me. Get up, come follow me. Get up, come follow me. And he says the same to us today. It's the comfort that we have as being God's children, that we are salt and light, that we are the very children of God, and we are meant to bear this light to the world. It's an adventure. It's a lot of fun. Adventures are dangerous. Adventures are hard, right? Journeys are tough. They're they're not always fun. They're not always pleasant. They're often perilous. But it's a thrill because in the process, we receive the comfort of the Spirit and we receive the very presence of God and we receive even in our own hearts the actual character of the man who is making all things new. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. It's a word we need, Lord. Lord, we need to hear that we are salt. We need to hear that we are light. And yet, Lord, for all of us in this room, Father, I do pray, Father, for those who, who just, who, it's, it, you can't even believe it. There's just so much in our lives, so much in my life that I just can't even, I, I can't even believe that this is actually true. I, mean, I just pray, Father, in Jesus' name for that, those souls who feel that, Lord, that you would comfort them and you would assure them by your spirit that they are that they are the children of God. I pray for those souls in this room right now, Lord, who might not know you. If there's anyone in this room who does not know you, Lord, that you would have mercy on them to, to conform their soul to say that the most important person in the entire universe is Jesus Christ and that we must come to terms with who he is. I pray that that would happen. And I pray, Father, for all of us as a church, Lord, as we live in our communities, as we go to our jobs, as we do the very important Uh, work of all of our various callings, Lord, as parents, as husbands, as wives, as friends, as neighbors, as children, Lord, that we would do so with an eye to asking, how might I grow as salt and light? How could I be a witness? How can I testify to the kindness of Jesus Christ where I am? We love you and we thank you and pray all these things through Christ our King. Amen.